0: Are you interested in influencing product innovation? Technomic's Industry Influencer Panel lets you share ideas about the support you need through surveys and bulletins. Join for free today and help push the industry forward. Visit technomic.com slash panel for details. How does Hungry Howie's compete in a pizza sector with so many giant competitors? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Steve Jackson, CEO of the 500-unit chain, to find out about its response to the pandemic and its ability to grow in a market with so many giant companies. Hungry Howie's is based in Madison Heights, Michigan, not far away from the corporate headquarters of Domino's and Little Caesars, the largest and third largest pizza chains in the United States, respectively. We talked with Steve about that competitiveness and also about the company's history, how it responded to the pandemic, and how the company's recent push into technology set it up for an era in which customers have relied more on mobile and web ordering than ever. Please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Steve Jackson. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you, Jonathan. It's nice to uh, talk to you again.
0: Yeah, so how are things going at Hungry Howie's?
1: Well, you know what? Uh, we're actually very blessed in, in the business world, okay? With, uh, with our category, the pizza category ended up being an essential business when this all broke loose 11 months ago, uh, we have had a pretty good year. I'm not going to say we weren't faced with countless challenges, but uh, all in all, our numbers were up. We uh, we had a great year. We had great
0: profitability,
1: and uh, it's even going better so far in the first period of
0: 2021. Do you think? uh, So uh, speaking about 2021, do you think the stimulus has helped a little bit? We're hearing that pretty universally.
1: No doubt about it. When the stimulus checks hit, we see major changes,
0: Mm -hmm. and uh,
1: we finished 2020 uh, same store sales up 14.6 percent. And in the first four weeks of 2021, we're up 25.11 percent in the first four weeks. And I'm going to throw a lot of that to stimulus. I mean, we're the type of product where we can we can feed a family dinner for under 20 bucks. So it's real easy. We can deliver it to you, and uh, you can pick it up and save a couple of bucks. So we're uh, we're a number one choice, I think, when it comes to dinner and lunch. And we're just blessed to be there
0: hmm Did you have to, um, I mean, did you have to change or do anything differently once, uh, once the pandemic hit? Did you, did you change processes at all?
1: Well, very similarly to what most brands had to do. When it, when it first started, uh, we actually saw a dip in business the first couple of weeks. It was a bit scary. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then it uh, ramped up pretty quickly. And then all the issues regarding social distancing, sourcing masks, developing a shield for our counters, coming up with the floor stickers for social distancing for customers, uh, developing curbside pickup for customers. You know, there were a lot of things that, that we didn't necessarily expect. Interestingly enough, we had been talking about curbside for about two years before that, so we had a lot of the legwork and thought processes set up, but still to execute those in hundreds of stores, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge. The uh, biggest challenge we had is at those beginning uh, shelter-in-place time frames of the pandemic. You know, our business depends on a lot of 16 to 23-year-old employees. And when that shelter-in-place took off, mom said, you're not working. You're staying home. And uh, that really crippled a lot of our, our back uh, kitchen workforce mm-hmm. that kind of keeps uh, the engine rolling in the stores. And uh, we had to go through a series of some interesting changes. We had to take stores that were open from 11 to 11, and in some instances cut their hours three to eight. You know, we just had to take care of the time frames that we were able to take care of. And uh, obviously we had COVID breaks, just like everybody else had to shut stores down, re-sanitize them, move staff. Uh, we were forced with a list of challenges
0: hmm did you have to think i mean I, I think one of the things that that were we um are wondering is it, it it seems like that during the pandemic um executives and managers had to make a lot more quick decisions that essentially you really had to think on your feet because things changed so quickly and the environment was so much different would you would you agree with that or
1: 100% Jonathan we, we our leadership team meets every tuesday morning at 8:30 and in march of uh, last year when uh, all this started crumbling and the issues took place we met every day 7 days a week to deal with the issues of the day the sourcing issues the the stores that had you know concerns and what have you so for about 3 to 4 weeks and then we pared it down to every other day and uh, Microsoft Teams has saved the business world. Zoom, Microsoft Teams, those products. I'm kind of an old school, old business guy. And uh, I believe being in the office is extremely important. And when that took place, uh, we didn't meet in the office. Uh, I was in out of state for 14 weeks. I would never, ever have suspected that. Since last March, my leadership team has not met face-to-face one time. So we've learned how to do business completely differently. Our franchise advisory councils, our ad councils, that are all meeting on Microsoft Teams at an ad council meeting this morning for three hours. And everybody logs in. And uh, a year ago, I would have scratched my head and said it's too impersonal, but I, I believe that it's going to be the future of business. Yeah,
0: yeah, no. super. So let's, um, I want to, I want to ask you, you have, uh, you go back quite a long time in this brand. Did you not tell me a little bit about, uh, about that? Your history in the brand uh, dates back quite a while.
1: My personal history. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Well, a friend of mine opened the first location in 1973. We had worked, he had owned a couple of, of stores of another brand in the late sixties and early seventies. And I delivered pizzas for him at that time. Well, I graduated from high school in 1972. Jim Hearn was this individual, and he was about 12 years older than my friends and, my, and myself. So we, you know, he was our mentor. We just kind of uh, kind of followed him around. Well, I went off and uh, commuted to college, and uh, still stayed friends with him. He left that other brand and had a little hamburger stand in Taylor, Michigan, and decided in early 1973 that he would convert that stand into the pizza back into the pizza business, and that's what he did. And that was the first Hungry Howies. So I stayed friends and we, uh, you know, talked uh, continually. But my goal was to be a a school teacher. And uh, that was not the best time in the 70s. I was working at Ford on the line. So in 1976, with no teaching jobs available, one year away from graduating from college and with a job at Ford Motor Company, which was jobs for life back in that time, and I didn't really care for it. I left Ford. I quit college, and with Jim's help, opened Hungry Howie's Number Two in 1976. That's how it started.
0: Wow! So uh, you 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 were you gave up a job at Ford in the 1970s. Yeah. Yep. Which uh, you know, and I, I, um, you know, I mean, at the time even at that time, a job at Ford was a very well-paying. It Um, was,
1: I'll tell you in 1974, I made $15,000 working at Ford and starting salary for a first year teacher was $8,600 a year. (laughs) Okay. So when we got to the point that I had a year left of college, there were no jobs even available. So even if I completed it, I was going to take a big cut in pay, even if I could even find a job. So, it was kind of a critical point where, uh, uh, boy, did I, I was so lucky to have the support. I was married even at that time. And, um, I had the support of my wife and, uh, borrowed a couple dollars from my in-laws and, uh, put that together and, you know, got that store open and, uh, we were very lucky.
0: Right. So you opened this up. Were you a franchisee?
1: Nope. Nope. We were just friends. Okay. We had the first store. Friends. I had the second store. And then what we did was we, uh, Opened about a dozen stores with uh, friends and relatives in the 70s. Best man in my wedding partnered in the store. The man of honor's husband in my wedding partnered in the store. Jim's brother opened the store. Got about a dozen stores open. They we're all doing pretty good. And I had read about franchising. Jim, eh, he kind of was laid back, didn't really want to bother with it. And I pestered him enough and drug him to a a law firm in uh, 1980, we, we began that process to get registered and awarded our first franchise
0: in 1983. Mm-hmm. So it took you a little bit to get to the, to the franchising part of it.
1: Absolutely. And, and back then, franchising was very complicated. There were a number of brands that took advantage of people in the 70s. So to get approved, at least in the state of Michigan, was, uh, was quite a challenge. And mm-hmm. you're talking just, you know, young rookie people <laughs> going through with an attorney. And it took a little bit of time, mm-hmm. but uh, we, we plugged away and, uh, you know, kept it going.
0: You must have had something going pretty good, though, if all your like all of these different friends wanted to get in on the business. Yeah. You know, it's it's obviously it's
1: always been the American dream to work for yourself. Mm-hmm. And in uh, any chance that you can do it and make a living, I think it's it's very attractive. Uh, obviously, back in those days, we weren't challenged with all the governmental regulations and everything that we're dealing with now. So, you know, back, we, we we I always use this example. I mean, our barometer for profitability was our checkbook, okay? And if there was money there, then we were doing okay. Food costs, paper costs, labor, you know, we didn't do that. We were running stores. So then when I made the decision to franchise, all, all of a sudden, now we have to teach people how to do this. So now we had to develop all that part of the business. So we worked really hard to, uh, to put a training program together. And you know what, we're still not done doing it after all these years. It's a constant work of art to keep that going. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So it had to be though, I mean, that had to be a pretty big risk. uh, I mean, to, to give up a job at Ford, uh, to go work, uh, you know, start a pizza restaurant.
1: It, you know, it was Jonathan, but I mean, I was very young. I was naive, and I really didn't like what I was doing. So anything seemed better than that. And uh, I, I had a lot of respect for Jim because he was, you know, he was late twenties. Uh, I grew up in a thousand square foot house, and Jim had just built a brand new eighteen hundred square foot house in a new suburb, and drove new, cup, new cars, and we just worshiped thinking he was the wealthiest person that we knew. So whatever he did seemed to be pretty successful and we were going to follow in those footsteps.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, now I understand that you, uh, you guys uh, helped develop the flavored crust. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. In,
1: uh, in the early eighties, one of our franchisees had made a suggestion. Well, actually it was after 83 because we didn't award the first franchise till then but we did sign agreements with the existing people that were part of the brand. So we had about 25, you know, 30 stores. And uh, one of the franchisees had uh, played around with buttering the crust or putting some sesame seeds on it. And, you know, we took a a good look at it and uh, I just made a decision that, you know, if we take this and, and expand on it a little bit, we can maybe develop a niche that would be a little bit different than anybody else. I mean, you got to remember where our first store opened up, it was within 25 miles of the first Little Caesars and 25 miles of the first Domino's. So we grew up fighting the big boys since day one. And it was a very, you know, cutthroat, you know, Caesars, you know, pizza, pizza, giving away products and what have you. It's been a very uh, challenging, competitive business. So we just looked at that as maybe a little bit of a niche that might differentiate our product. Mm-hmm. So we, we worked on that. We came up with eight different flavors, sesame, garlic, rye, uh, you know, butter, cheese, butter, you know, just on its own and uh, rolled that in 1985 in all of our stores.
0: Mm hmm. So, But a franchisee is the one that started playing around with that. Was, was the franchisee serving it like this or just...
1: No, of- no, no. He was just kind of testing it. I, mm-hmm. I think he might have seen something done with sesame seeds. So he kind of brought this to my attention and said, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we kind of looked at it. And then as we uh, put our heads together, we thought, I think we can do more with this. You know, maybe we can add other flavors to uh, to enhance the crust and give uh, give customers the option, you know, you might think back in in the early days of pizza, the uh the crust was just the handle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if you were eating pizza with friends or family, at the end of the at the end of eating it, you'd see all the crust laying in the boxes. They'd eat up to that and throw it in. So we kind of uh took the marketing edge to say, you know, uh, you can start where you used to leave off, you know, because the crust is going to be just as good as the rest
0: of the product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um and uh uh obviously that worked pretty well for you guys. It
1: did. It just kind of separated us, you know, a little bit from from everybody else and uh just made uh our product stand out from that that point.
0: Mhm. So you you mentioned one of you mentioned one of the more interesting things that, um uh, about uh sort of, uh, m- maybe about like sort of the Michigan pizza scene but like I, I the, the the fact that you've been able to to uh do what you've done in a market filled with, you know, two of the three largest uh uh pizza players um mm-hmm. in the country, you know, in a in a market that actually is is pretty uh, yeah, you know, I mean the people in Michigan love their pizza for sure. Mm-hmm. Um how, um can you talk a little bit about that? How it's like to to kind of um operate in a market like that?
1: Well, You know, as I had already said, it's very competitive. You know, bear in mind, not only do you have those couple big brands, but you have the offshoots like the Hungry Howie's that are the 10, 20, 30 star brands that, you know, fall into that same competitive landscape. So, uh, and a lot of times, you know, the pizza category is kind of a small fraternity. People fracture off like Jim did and start their own. So there's, there's a few other ones and you're aware of those. Mm-hmm. so um it just made us have to work harder and figure out better ways to uh to execute our business model and to market it and uh, we were able to you know keep one step ahead and and stay competitive and mm-hmm. uh, it's all about people and it's about service and having a good product and uh, that's really what we we tried to pull off and uh, we're fortunate fortunate enough to to be successful at it
0: mm-hmm so uh um do you think that's kind of helped you sort of um uh I mean do you because I like right now I mean the, the the business is is you know it's certainly it doesn't appear to be any easier uh from a competitive standpoint um do you think that that just sort of you know kind of makes you just a, a sort of a better operator and a better executive as a result of having to deal with all that stuff early on
1: Well, we've always felt our relationship with our operators is of the utmost importance and it has to, we have to be confident in each other and we have to be supportive of each other. So we tend to run a business model that uh, takes our franchisees opinions into consideration. And when we make business decisions, we we always try to keep in mind how they will be accepted and how it's going to affect their bottom line. You know, when we, when we were, tackling all the competitive uh promotions in the 80s and the 90s with the buy one get one free pizzas and the five dollar large pizzas um, you know it 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 was uh it was a challenge to be creative to not we never really wanted to compromise our product to lower the price of a promotion and I don't think that we've ever done that but we've still been able to remain competitive
0: mm-hmm so, um, so you, you said you, you, you always listen to your franchisees and stuff like that. And the, the you know, it was a, a franchisees idea uh, for the flavored crust early on. I mean, have you, uh, have they recommended other uh, uh, flavors or, or menu items or promotions in the years since then? Well,
1: I mean, nothing comes completely to mind, but because our communication is, is pretty tight, you know, it, an idea could surface in the field. Or we might throw an idea out, more importantly, that they might point out reasons why maybe we shouldn't consider it. And we take that into consideration also. So we, we've tried to keep our menu fairly limited. In fact, with COVID, we even cut a couple of products most recently that we had developed over you know last three to five years because business had increased double digits. The franchisees wanted to, you know, streamline our operations, so we listened to that also. So it's 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 a give and take in every aspect of business.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems to me like you have this group of people who are out uh, operating restaurants, and you know, and you know, they're you know, and they're in their individual markets. They see what other things are selling, and you mm-hmm. know, they they see what their people are. You know, they see what their their customers are ordering, and you know, they, you know, they know how difficult or or easy something is to operate or do. And, you know, it would, it just seems to me like you, you, you're, you're not being very intelligent if you don't listen to them.
1: Well, we're challenged many times with franchisees that are in remote markets and whether it's a $5 large pizza or whatever, they want to discount it. And we have to actually try to have a, you know, we can't dictate their pricing. So if they Mm. want to sell pizza cheaper. You know they're fully within their right to do that, but we do everything we can to share the information that uh, we have to lead them in the in the right direction. And uh, the one thing that we've invested heavily on in, in the last you know number of years is technology. And we're very proud for the size of our brand, the technology that we have, that our franchisees are able to utilize. And uh, and that being said, you know we're utilizing you know, technology that the big brands have. And, and we've developed a lot of it internally. So when our franchisees can look at those KPIs and, and look at the, the marketing returns and the discount percentages and, you know, watch their stores in real time on their, on their smartphones and, you know, at 9 a.m. the next day, they get reports on all the metrics of their business for the day before from product mix, marketing mix, same store sales, you know do coupon discounts so i mean i think we've we've continued to furnish them with the necessary information to increase profitability and uh, and that that helps them make their decisions
0: mhm yeah um uh so you, talk a little bit about that technology because you did you have spent some time really burnishing your technology credentials and 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 taking a lot of of, of steps to you know to keep up with a pretty tech savvy business yeah, um, that helped you during the pandemic. I have, have to believe that it did.
1: Oh, it, without a doubt. I mean, we we got real serious about ten, technology in the last ten years, and you know, computers started you know trickling into the pizza category in the '90s, and you know, it was it was a it was a bumpy road, you know, for the first ten years. And the thing about pizza, you know, because of the millions of combinations and delivery, and that it's even even more complicated from a POS standpoint, but we, we held steadfast. And I think we utilized probably the best POS software available and uh, we spent time starting, you know, we developed our internal IT department. And then what we had to do back in like 2013 and 14 was standardize all these computers because it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of the pizza category, aside from most other restaurant categories, We have the most information on our customers than just about anybody. When you look at the QSRs of the Golden Arches, Arby's, what have you, you frequent those stores and they might by chance get your email address or get your text number to send you something. Because of the way our business model is structured, we have your name. We know where you live. We know we have your phone numbers and we know what you eat. And we know how often you eat it. So we take all that information and we've integrated that with a company in Los Angeles, of data scientists that developed lapsed customer programs for us. We know our MVP customers. We track everything so we know how often people come. And when they miss a segment, we're funneling them, you know, coupons or offers to bring them back. And it's become very sophisticated, you know. I, I think I started to say earlier, because back in those early days, you know, we had a cigar box as a cash register and our barometer for profitability was our checkbook. Well, those days obviously are long gone and profit is a slim margin. So you've got to be on top of every part of your business. And technology is, is the only answer that helps you make the right decisions for the future.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. So did you, uh, was it a learning process to figure out what to do with all the information you were getting? That seems to be one of the biggest challenges for the industry what to do with all of that
1: stuff. Well, that's true. Yeah, it is information overload, but but we've kind of picked and choose what's important to us look, to look at daily, weekly, and and monthly. And by doing that, it has uh, afforded us great opportunity to increase profitability of the stores because it just... Uh, you know, when you have real data, live data, uh, it's kind of hard to not understand what your responsibility is and what the decision needs to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the another challenge, I think, for for I think certainly for a lot of pizza concepts and, and, and a few others that did pretty well over the past year is how do you keep the business? Um, because eventually we return to normal. God, I hope so. Um, and uh, you know, so eventually we return to uh, to normal. What? How do you, um, you know, how do you maintain this momentum?
1: You know, that that's the big question. It really is. I mean, we've even said internally, you know, we've we've enjoyed so much additional business over the last year that as the vaccine rolls out, as the new new normalcy becomes more regulated, more acceptable. Are people going to wake up one day and say, I'm not eating a pizza for a year? So I've eaten way too much of it. Let's just take a year off. So that's kind of the internal joke. But uh, I think because we have the information that we do, we will keep in touch with that customer base and uh, we will we will market to them and and do what's necessary. The one thing that's been a big advantage, you know, with the pizza business being so competitive, average tickets and the the free deals and the 50% offs have just been rampant for decades. Mm -hmm. And our average ticket has increased significantly over this last year. And we sit back thinking we sure hope we never get back into that craziness that, uh, you know, and I think a lot of the brands are sitting there now looking at each other. Who's going to throw the first super deal out there? <laughs> and everybody's kind of waiting. But, you know, we'll do what we have to do. We, we've we lived through decades. You know, we've lived through, you know, the, the financial issues, the wars and everything else. And this has been the most challenging, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, the future is a little bit unpredictable now with the new variants coming out in COVID. So, It's a day-to-day, you know, the the administration change we just lived through in the last 60 days, that's going to change things a bit Mm -hmm. the last four years. With that administration, we saw government regulations being relaxed, making it a bit easier for small business to function. There's every indication that that's going to tighten back up because this administration might want to restore some of the previous uh, ideas, so... I, I tell my people, let's control what we can control. Mm-hmm. And whatever happens, we can't change it, but we'll just have to make the necessary adjustments to uh, to continue our you know, 48 years in this business and, and we'll do what we have to do. Mm.
0: Super, sir, this was fantastic. Really appreciate you joining us this week on the podcast.
1: Okay, Jonathan, thanks for thinking of me. Let me know if you ever need anything.
0: And that should do it for today's episode of A Deeper Dive. Before I go, I would like to remind everyone to check out all of Restaurant Business Podcasts, including Menu Feed, RB Daily, and Buzzworthy Brands. They are available anywhere you get your podcasts. The Deeper Dive was edited by Kimberly Kazmarek, artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. And please feel free to Check them out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can subscribe and do all sorts of happy things. I'm Jonathan Mays, the editor in chief of restaurant business, your host, and the podcast producer. Thank you for listening. Help the industry on the panel to recovery. With Technomic's industry influencer panel, you can participate in surveys and bulletin boards to influence product innovation. Learn more at technomic.com/panel.